Hi, welcome back to The Cake with Joe and Jane. It's called The Cake because there is a cake for everyone. Whether it be walnut, chocolate, fruit, red velvet, cheesecake, you name it, we all love cake. And at Salisbury, we definitely use it as something to help support and unite us as a hospital. We're recording three great conversations for you today about sexuality, race, and this one is about faith at work. But before we get into it, though, we should probably introduce ourselves again. My name's Joe. I'm the recruitment team leader here at the Trust. And my favourite cake, well, it's changed multiple times today. I'm now going to say it's Jane's chocolate cake, which was amazing and has chocolate chips in it. So, uh, yeah, my waistline doesn't like you today. Definitely going to hit the gym <laughs> later then. Yep. Okay, I am Jane, and I am head of nursing for one of the clinical divisions here at the hospital. And like Joe, I think I'm going to change my mind and say that my favourite cake now is... Black Forest. Ooh. That is really nice, that one. You did a good job on that. Yeah. I, You've excelled yourself Very there. naughty. Okay, so let's get into it then and introduce you to our guest for the third episode. On this podcast, we are very lucky to have the hospital chaplain, Francis Cannon. Francis, there's so much more to you other than your job title. Can we start today's discussion with you just telling us something a bit more about yourself that people probably don't already know? I think I'm pretty much an open book I don't think there's much people don't know because I do talk rather a lot (laughs) but no I've been here for about 12 years but I was uh, I um, my professional life started in the military so I did 20 years in the army and then I did uh, 10 years in adult education and um, and then the collar happened uh, whichever way you want to take that so uh, yeah definite call to hospital chaplaincy and hospice chaplaincy and um, it's been a blast, really. It's, uh, I've been a very lucky girl. Could you tell me a bit more about how your faith impacted your decision to join the army and then go into education? Yes, it might mean sharing a story I don't tell very often. But I went off to university and I realised when I got there that I'd made a ghastly decision. I think because I was always living in the shadow of an older sister who was just a year older and she's much brighter than I am. I think I needed to prove I was as good as she was, Mm. academically. And once I got there, went into the library and saw people pouring over great, you know, piles of books and clearly enjoying it, and I thought, I've got three years of this, I can't do this. Mm. I was always planning to to join the army uh, after my degree, but I wimped out and left university. And um, when the dean of students, who I had to go and tell... When I saw her, she said, just have a walk, take a packed lunch and sit and think it through and you'll be okay. And I was supposed to be seeing her the next morning at nine o'clock. So I got on the tube from Clapham Common. <laughs> I, was, I was at uh, King's College in London. And on, on the train, there was a, a guy reading a newspaper. And when I got on the train, I had no idea what I was going to say to the Dean of Students when I got there because I hadn't made a decision And I looked at this newspaper and a whole full-size advert was facing me and it had a pair of army boots on it and it said, they won't make you any taller, but they'll make you feel that way. I don't know, it's really difficult to explain what that did to me. It was as though it kind of stood out in lights and I thought, that's it. That's what you I'm going to do. Exactly. I had like my little prayer time in the morning, mm-hmm. and, um, and I'd asked for guidance, and nothing was forthcoming. And then this. 
And I just couldn't think of that as a coincidence. I looked at the Navy and the Air Force. I don't want to cause offence to anyone. Um, but at the time, <laughs> I, I've never been... I always get seasick, so that was never really a starter. And um, the Air Force sounded a bit as though women at that time couldn't really have a career which matched what the boys could do. Yep. And I was affronted by that a little bit. And the army seemed to have more possibilities. But I did know I wanted a structured environment where there was a degree of discipline yeah. and, um, and I suppose, a uniform. I mean, no change there then, because no. I'm still wearing uniform. Exactly. <laughs> um, of a different kind. But there was something about that, knowing where you stand, having a clear sense of purpose about what you're doing on any given day, it seemed to me that the armed services offered that in a way which I couldn't quite see in a civilian role yeah, at the time. Normal, in a normal nine-to-five role. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. didn't want that. I wanted to be uncertain what was going to happen yeah. each day. So how, exactly. did, how did you go from wanting uncertainty every day to a very structured classroom educational role? Well, it, it wasn't actually that structured. When I was about to leave the army, and that was all because I had a baby... My other half and I had been serving together for about 17 years of our marriage. And then I discovered I was pregnant. And we'd given up any thought of that ever happening, really. So it was a bit of a surprise. So at that point, we had to make a big decision. Can I be a full-time soldier and also look after this totally dependent little human being for whom I'm now completely responsible? We talked about it and... (laughs) Um, My husband's career was going rather better than mine at the time, so it was obvious that if one of us was going to take a back seat, it was going to have to be me. So um, I resigned. And as part of that process, the the military is is very good about uh, resettlement, and uh, you have a chance to train to do something else when you become a civvy. I'd always enjoyed the training side of, of the military anyway, so teaching was an obvious area. So I went and did a, um, a lengthy course in teaching English as a foreign language. Mm. And so I had some wonderful times. I taught English to Gurkha soldiers for some years. I taught Chinese airline pilots for Cathay Pacific. And that was very interesting. Mm. And if you have trouble, as Chinese first language speakers do, with L's and R's, giving the emergency instructions was quite interesting. They needed <laughs> help. You can't really say, blaze, blaze, blaze. No. No. (laughs) So we had to work on that a bit. Um, Yes, lyrax and enjoy the fright. We can't do that either. (laughs) So so pronunciation was quite a thing. But but I tended to do one-to-one or small groups. Yeah. And so we could get out and about and use the language rather than um, learn it in a bookish kind of way. I think that's what I'm saying. So when did you first discover your calling to the collar, as you say? Well, my dad was ordained as well, but he was, he was never full-time in the church, so he wasn't a vicar as such, he was a, he was a school chaplain. And so I was brought up in a, in a Christian household, so mm. the church part of it was always there. And I suppose I must have been a teenager when I first thought that was where I was heading, but of course in those days, women and the priesthood just weren't a thing yeah. in the Anglican church. And um, so it took a while, and then I got distracted, I got married, joined the army, and the rest is history, really. 
But when we returned from the States in um, 2010, after my husband's last posting, there was an opportunity to um, train for ordination. So wow. I put my name forward and um, the pieces of the jigsaw fell into place. And uh, any time before that, the timing wouldn't have worked. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Well, as they say, everything happens for a reason. Exactly, exactly. And would you say that your faith has ever impacted your experience in the workplace? That's interesting. Um, we do have good questions here, you see. We make you think. Yes. <laughs> you don't get the cake for Whether free. It's, I, I think I, sometimes um, what has made a big difference is turning up at work wearing a collar yeah. makes a difference because it's already making a statement it about is. what I stand for. Yeah. And I guess different people interpret that in different ways. So some people see it as a, as a threat. Some people see it as a... Um, an invitation. I hope most people would see it that way. But I can perhaps share a little story, if I may. Yes. After I'd been here about six weeks, it was very early days, I went down to the hospice and um, I could hear yelling from some distance away down the corridor. And as I approached from the internal corridor, there was a guy who was wedged in the doorway of one of the single rooms in the, in the hospice as it was then laid out. And he was effing and blinding and shouting mm. the odds. He didn't want to cooperate. He'd obviously just arrived. Um, I learned later that it was the, this was the first time he'd ever set foot in a building called a hospice. Right. He just did not want to cooperate. And he was clearly very afraid. Anyway, in came the collar. He saw me from a, a distance of about 20 feet. And he turned all his anger on me and he started jabbing his finger in my direction. And if I'm allowed to say this on the radio, he went, and you can piss off. <laughs> oh, wow. Word. Now, I, as I mentioned, was in the army, so not much shocked me. So I stopped, but the British Army never retreats. We do tactical withdrawals. <laughs> so I took a pace backwards so that he didn't feel threatened anymore, I hope. And I said to him, no, that's fine. We're highly trained in that. And he looked up and he wasn't quite sure. You could see the cogs whirring. And yep. he went, you what? And I said, uh, yeah, we spend years at theological college learning to piss off properly. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say, humour is my first defence normally if I'm under attack. And it was a very moving moment because there was a little crinkle at the side of his mouth after mm -hmm. a few seconds. You got him. And then he said, you'd better come in then. Yeah. And I got to know him a little bit over the next few weeks. And actually, I was privileged to be there at the moment when he died, which is unusual. And he was never a person of faith. He was very quick to tell me that. And I think if I had appeared without the collar that day, we might have had a different conversation. Sure. So in a way, even the threat was at least a talking point. And um, it got the conversation going. So I guess it's... It's better to wear it than not, Absolutely. unless specifically asked. Yeah. And you, you said then, Francis, you use humour a lot when you're under attack. So, you, so do you also use it as a bit of an icebreaker when you Absolutely. meeting yeah, people yeah. for the first yeah, yeah. time? And yeah. Oh, you know, I don't want anything from you, thank you. I'm an atheist. We hear quite often, and um, I think I usually say something like, um, oh, an atheist, great, they're my favourite. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Because I think people have a certain expectation. They think that we fit the stereotypical role as chaplains and that we're there to 
recruit, to yeah. convert. And of course, that's not why we're there at all. No, of course not. Far more conversations take place about what appears to be nif-naf and trivia and superficial. But that's all about establishing a relationship of trust with the other person. And then if they raise the subject of faith, um, God, big questions, then we can have those conversations. Because I think when you're a patient in hospital, you have a lot of time to think. And in the 21st century, with all our modern technology and noise all the time, there aren't many opportunities when we just sit and think quietly. And so when you're in that enforced environment where you have to be with your own thoughts for a bit and you're constantly waiting for things to happen and you've surrendered control of most aspects of your life when you're bed-bound, that's when the big questions start going around people's heads. And so then, hopefully, when a, a chaplain or a chaplaincy visitor turns up and says, which football team do you support? Or who's that handsome man in that photograph? That can lead to all sorts of really deep questions of what's really going on in their heads. And it's quite moving sometimes when they share those thoughts and will sometimes say things that they've never told another soul. What is it you're encouraging people to explore to a greater depth? First of all, it's not that we're encouraging them to explore. It's all about the patient. Every conversation we have with the patient or the member of staff that we're talking to, the length and content of that conversation is governed by the other person. But the kind of questions that come up, which is maybe what you're getting at, they will say things like, what have I done to deserve this? Or why is this so unfair? Why have I had three different kinds of cancer? And other people sail through to their 80s. Yeah. And, you know, I'm 23. Um, why have I been dealt this hand? Exactly. Yeah. And um, so a lot of conversations about fate, what that means. Mm. You know, what are we here for? What's life about? One particular conversation where a patient said to me, what do you think happens after we're done? That's a good question. Yeah. And the person who was asking was, she wasn't approaching the very end of her life, but she knew her her time was limited. And I knew that whatever I said was hugely important. And for her, it was urgent. And I said, what do you think because I'm a bit of a coward, and I thought I needed more time. And she said, tell me about heaven. And um, all I could think of, I was sending up what we might call an arrow prayer. You know, I hope, Lord, whatever I say next is going to be okay. And I was reminded where the memory came from, I'm not sure, but it was uh, there was a thought for the day on Radio 4, which I happened to listen to with my dad. And he was so impressed by it that he sent for a transcript of this thought for the day, just a few minutes. And I still have a copy of that transcript. And it was very meaningful, and it was on the subject of what is heaven like? And so I quoted from it to this lady, and I I said, I don't know, you know, none of us knows. But I think from what I believe that... Whatever it's like, it's going to be better than a Beethoven sonata in the Albert Hall. It's going to be better than moonlight on a tropical beach. It's going to be better than the first kiss, better than strawberries at Wimbledon. Yeah. There was a whole raft oh, of these beautiful images. Lovely. You know, so whatever you imagine those are like, multiply it by 10,000 and you might be getting close. Yeah. 
and this this lady i think she wanted to hear that you know yeah. she wanted to be reassured and um not pie in the sky when you die kind of stuff but just she needed to know that i believed it yeah and i uh, hopefully some of that helped her as she was contemplating all this big stuff what's the most bizarre myth you've heard about the role of the hospital chaplaincy well maybe it, i'm not i'm not sure if it's bizarre we used to have a chaplain here who was uh, a, an anglican nun sister teresa some people may remember yeah. sister teresa yeah i remember her and um she dressed as a nun when she was on duty and uh, she would go around and and do her visits to the bedsides and chat with people and um I happened to be on the ward when she was visiting a patient. I'd gone to have a chat with one of the staff. And I overheard a patient who had just come round from an anaesthetic. And he woke up and the first person he saw was Sister Teresa standing at the end of the bed. And his reaction was, bloody hell, I must be ill. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> and I suppose maybe that's the other stereotype, which it would be quite nice yeah. to dispel that we don't just turn up when you're dying. Yeah. Far more of our patients, I'm happy to report, <laughs> <laughs> get better and go home. Yeah. Do you feel that people have certain expectations of you? Yeah. I think they're often surprised by those two things. You know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not here to tell you you're dying. Yeah. And I'm not here to convert you to the way I think about things. And um, it's also important for people to realise that although most of our chaplains here are, are Christian... That's because we reflect the society we serve. Mm. Yeah. But we have a vast list of, of contact outside the hospital, leaders of other faith communities mm. um, and humanists, atheists. We've got all sorts of people we can call in. So that if a particular individual wants to see someone who's not from our tradition and finds it offensive to have a Christian person at their bedside, then we can call someone else in. Francis, can you tell me how the role of the chaplaincy has played a part in the pandemic over the past two years? Sure. It was such a such a bolt out of the blue for everyone, I think, wasn't it? And um, just before the first lockdown, I think a lot of hospitals just stopped all volunteers, all visitors, mm. and sometimes chaplains. And we were all sent home on day one because we were super spreaders. At the time, you may remember John, our lead chaplain yeah, at yeah. the time, he really rose to the challenge. He was absolutely magnificent. We took the day off, and he sat and thought about it, as, as we all did. And he came in the next day with, and I think presented the um, hierarchy with a plan. It wasn't so much of, please may we come back. It was more, this is our plan of how we're going to do spiritual care yep. in a pandemic. God bless the people he spoke to, who said, okay then, thank you. Yeah, so let's crack on. Yeah. And so obviously we all had to be fitted for all the kit, the, yep. the full PPE, etc., those who could were really um, doing a bit of overtime. And, of course, in that first wave, I think there was a lot of fear, yeah. generally, yes, among staff and patients. It was pre-vaccination. And so um, nobody really knew how it was going to pan out. Looking back now, perhaps we would have done it differently. I don't know. Um, that's a, a conversation for another time, perhaps. But um, the intensity of the care that we were giving suddenly became escalated, rather. And, um, and I think one of the things that we found ourselves 
thinking about a lot was what we now call moral injury, mm. um, where a member of staff was told, for example, no visitors on the ward, uh, but conscience said, but the patient desperately needs, you know, especially if they were end of life, yeah. um, desperately needs five minutes with yeah. their nearest and dearest. Surely we can make an exception. No, under certain conditions, no. And um, I mean, thank goodness, as we got to learn more about this awful infection and as it mutated and became less deadly, it became proportionally easier to set about our, our work. But the other thing that was very interesting was how more receptive the staff were to our visits as they got used to us yeah. coming yeah. around and perhaps wanting to engage with us on a personal level. So we were supporting them as much as we were the patients, really. So it was a special time. It was, I think our profile went up a bit and people would phone us perhaps a bit more often. But I'm aware now, after two years, that everyone is tired, yeah. wrung out even, possibly burnt out in some cases. So it's been um, a huge mental stress in terms of professionalism and, you know, we're not yeah. quite doing what we should be able to do. And I'm wrung out, but I've still got to care for this person yeah. Yeah. or pull a double shift. And we're doing the most we can um, in the parameters that we've yes, got on exactly. the, in the situation that we're in. Exactly. And so I think our role in supporting staff has become much more significant. And whereas two years ago I would have said, oh, we're here primarily for the patients, but we're also here for the staff mm. and for the visitors. Now, I think I'd say we're here for everyone. Yeah. And especially the staff. Yeah. Because if we don't get that bit right, then they're yeah. less able to care well for the oh, patients. completely yeah. agree. So, totally. Completely agree. Um, Francis, can I ask, you discussed your job and all the help you offer others and the hope you offer others and reassurance how do you go home and keep saying having experienced some of the things that you are part of I am very blessed to have some wonderful colleagues at work so um, and the joy of being a chaplain is that we know that when we go off duty there is always someone else carrying the pager of course, if you're the kind of person who enters the caring professions, um, it's not always that easy just to switch off. So can't sometimes just, yeah, you do take Can't just switch off, can you? Um, but I live about 40 minutes away, so that is downtime for me, and I can sort of process it so I don't hit my family with it the second I walk through the door, and I'm grateful for that. Um, but I'm also blessed with some very good Christian friends. Um, I think most of us chaplains have a, have a spiritual director, somebody we can talk to about anything and everything concerning our faith and our, our ministry. Um, and we also have professional supervision pretty regularly where we discuss as a group with uh, someone who's outside the trust. Yeah. Um, so yes, there are places to go. And a hot tub and a dry martini is pretty good at home. <laughs> oh, yeah, now we're talking. <laughs> so thank you, Francis, for being so open and honest with us. We have one last vital question. The which burning question. I think <laughs> our listeners are dying to hear Absolutely. the answer of. What is your favourite cake and why? Well, could I just say thank you so much because someone has kindly baked my favourite cake. I will pass all and of that glory over to my esteemed <laughs> uh, co-host over here. First and attempt, hope it's okay. I did have a little taste of it and it is absolutely delicious and I can even taste the kirsch. Uh, Black Forest Gatto. 
and I feel as though I'm on Test Match Special. <laughs> they, they always have cake, don't they? Um, but Black Forest Gateau, because when I first met my husband, soon afterwards we were posted to Germany, to different places in Germany, and we went on holiday together to the Black Forest, and that was a wonderful holiday way back. I won't say how many years, but it was quite a long time ago. Just a couple. And, um, and it became a bit of a tradition to go uh, to various places when we had days off to go and see a bit more of, of Germany. But we would always end up in a little cafe and having uh, cafe and und Kuchen, coffee and cake. Of course, Black Forest Gatto is a, well, derigueur in, in mm. Germany, yep. and it does involve lashings of cream. And I'm afraid my waistline at the time <laughs> tells a different story. I've been a bit more disciplined recently. We should have got cream today. We should have got cream. Oh, I didn't get a pot of cream, sorry. Very Noted bad for, for the waistline, time. but sure. very good for morale. So thank you for my cake. That's lovely. No, thank you for coming in today. We really do appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It's been lovely to see you. And you. Thanks so much for listening to the third episode of The Cake and to Francis for taking the time out to record with us. We've recorded two other brilliant conversations about race and place and sexuality. They're available on the same feed, so if you fancy checking them out, I think you'll really enjoy them and I know Joe would be really happy and grateful because he's done a lot of work. Worked really hard. We all have. So then, Jane, fancy a slice? Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs>